amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host. Today, we are bringing to you a special episode of our podcast. Scott Klusendorf, pro-life speaker and president of Life Training Institute, gave a talk at CSU San Marcos in Southern California on March 8th of this year. The title of his talk is Abortion and Equality, A Defense of Human Life. And we are bringing that talk to you in its entirety, including the Q&A section. You'll hear Nathan starting things off to introduce Scott. Next week, we'll return with our regular weekly content when we talk about a recent viral video from Students for Life in which a pro-life student asks another student about his thoughts on personhood. Without further ado, here's Scott's presentation. I'm uh, CSU San Marcos. I am no longer with the group, actually. Uh, Dylan Steinecke is now our official president of the group. So if you want information on how to get on the email list and figure out about club events that are going on, uh, please talk to either myself or Dylan, and we'll be sure to make that happen. So a little bit about our speaker tonight. He is the president of the Life Training Institute, an organization that exists to equip pro-lifers to persuasively argue their and present their points in the public square and defend and articulate those values when challenged. So our speaker for tonight, Scott Klusendorf, is the author of several books, including The Case for Life, Stand for Life, Pro-Life 101, and then the forthcoming book, The Essential Pro-Lifer. Uh, he holds a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University and has participated in multiple debates with names like Dr. Nadine Strassen from the ACLU, Dr. Malcolm Potts from UC Berkeley, Eileen McDonough, and among others. So without further ado, we'll get this show on the road. Thanks, sir. All right, honesty. How many of you have ever been in an argument with your spouse or significant other or parent? You were winning. Everybody in the universe with a rational mind knew you were winning, and that person changed the subject on you. Can I see your hands? All right. Now, how many of you are honest enough to say you were losing the argument, everyone in the universe knew you were losing, and you changed the subject? Any takers there? All right. Well, tonight... We're going to look at a topic where people tend to change the subject, and I'm going to give you exhibit A of that in just a moment. But let me tell you what, pardon me, I just went through puberty. <laughs> Where's my water? I have a drinking problem too. Um, this'll do. 
Excuse me. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to lay out a case for the pro-life view, and I'm going to give you the reasons why I believe it's true and reasonable to believe. And then what I'll do is I will actually challenge my own view, not with what I think are weak challenges. I'm going to challenge it with the two best thinkers that I think present pro-lifers with a significant challenge, that being... Uh, David Boonin's desire argument in his book, A Defense of Abortion, and Judith Jarvis Thompson's bodily rights argument as articulated in her famous violinist analogy. And the reason why I want to use the strongest defenses or, or objections to my case is I think it's important in the abortion debate that both sides attribute to the other side their best spokespeople and not try to knock down straw man arguments, not try to just one-up someone. Let's actually look at which side has the strongest case to be made. And that's what I'll do tonight. And then what I'll do is I'll take questions from you. You can uh, fire anything you want at me. You're even free to disagree with me. You'll be wrong, but you're free to disagree with me. That was a joke, an attempt to bond with my audience. Went down faster than the Dodgers in the World Series, which I'm still getting over. All right, so let me give you example A of somebody who wants to change the subject. This is John Pavlovitz. You may have heard of him. He is actually an evangelical pastor. And John Pavlovitz thinks that pro-lifers are out to lunch. And he's written an article that appeared at the Huffington Post called, My Dear White Caucasian Conservative Pro-Life Friend, I Wish You Really Were Pro-Life. Do you get the feeling we're about to get clobbered? Well, here's what he says. I wish you were, really were pro-life, my friend. I really do. If you were pro-life, you'd want to do more than prevent abortions. You'd want to prevent hunger and poverty. You'd want to prevent illiteracy and child mortality and forced prostitutions. You'd want to prevent racism and bigotry and homophobia. You'd want kids in the bad neighborhood to have great schools and great teachers like the kids in the good neighborhood. You'd want to support single parents and the terminally ill and the mentally ill by helping them carry their oversized burden. You'd want people of color not to have to fear law enforcement and not be disproportionately incarcerated. You'd want fewer guns in the hands of kids and criminals and those with mental illness. You'd want a living wage for all people who work hard and health care for their children that won't have to replace the, their daily meals. My friend, I wish you really were pro-life. May I translate what you just heard? If you oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being through abortion, you are responsible for addressing every societal ill under the sun. That's the argument. Now, I think this is changing the subject, and let me tell you why. Would anybody go to the American Cancer Society and say, you're not really a healthcare organization because you're not taking on Crohn's disease, heart disease, strokes, diabetes? Nobody would do that. Or imagine this, a group of concerned citizens get together, and they open an inner city daycare center for mothers who don't have anyone to help them with their kids. And they open this daycare center five days a week for two hours, three to five every afternoon, so that kids can leave school, go to the daycare center while mom makes supper. It gives mom a little breathing space. 
Would anybody go to that group of citizens and say, you don't really care about kids, because if you did, you'd be open 24-7. And by the way, what are you doing about middle school kids and high school kids? How come you're only focusing on elementary age kids? Nobody would argue that way. But if you claim to be pro-life, you will be told that if you're truly pro-life, you'd be taking on all these things. That is an attempt to change the subject. And by the way, it's not just opponents of the pro-life view who change the subject. Pro-lifers change the subject, too by using arguments that really aren't to the point. Maybe you've heard this one. Well, gee, if we hadn't aborted so many children, we might have gotten the doctor who would cure cancer. Have you heard this argument? Or maybe we'd have the next Beethoven, a gifted musician. This is a horrible argument. The pro-life argument is not that it's wrong to intentionally kill unborn humans because they're gifted. The pro-life argument is this, and I'm going to give it to you right now in a syllogism. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion's wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. Now what's interesting about this syllogism is it gives us clarity. And by the way, I think this syllogism could be defeated. It can be defeated. But it won't do to change the subject. You have to show that it's either okay to intentionally kill innocent human beings, or you could argue premise two is wrong by saying, you know what? I don't believe the unborn are human beings, and therefore I don't think it's wrong to kill them. But it's not going to do to simply attack the pro-lifer personally and say, you're not taking on all these other issues, therefore you're not really pro-life. You gotta keep the main thing the main thing. And here's what I think the main thing is in the abortion debate. It's really not about a surgical procedure. It's really not. It's about a much deeper, fundamental division in our nation tonight. And that's this question. Does each and every human being have an equal right to life, regardless of gender, regardless of, of race, regardless of size, level of development, or where they're located? Does each and every human being have an equal right to life, or do only some have it in virtue of a characteristic that is arbitrarily selected that may come and go in the course of our lifetimes? Real simple, does each and every human being have an equal right to life? The abortion debate is about human equality. Who are we going to admit into the human family? That's the real rub here. That's what's really going on. Now, this is not a new debate in our country. A century and a half ago, Abraham Lincoln, in his famous House Divided speech, made the point that the nation was struggling with the same exact question of who counts as one of us. And, and Lincoln made the point that a nation is not going to survive if it answers that question the wrong way. And eventually, at least in terms of the slaves, we answered it the right way. And tonight, I want to argue that we should answer it the right way as well on the issue of abortion. And I'm going to lay out a case for that syllogism I just gave you. I'm going to lay out a case that I will defend with science to show the unborn are members of the human family and philosophy to argue there's no essential difference between that embryo you were and the adult you are today that would justify killing you back then. You will notice that I'm not going to be making an overtly religious argument tonight. I'm not going to be bringing scripture into my case. 
I am going to talk about Scripture briefly when I talk about what's my attitude toward people who've had abortions. You will note that I will do that, but my case is not built on Scripture tonight. It's built on the science of embryology and philosophy and how that relates to human equality. So here are the questions that I think will get us to the main thing, the main point. And you don't have to know a lot of things to get clarity on abortion. I think if you get these four questions down, you'll be all right. Here they are. Question number one, what is the unborn? We've got to answer that. We can't answer the question, can we kill the unborn, until we answer the question, what is the unborn? Second question, what is abortion? What is abortion? You know, a lot of people talk about it, but, but what is it? Then thirdly, what makes us valuable? What is it that gives us a right to, to life in the first place? And then fourth, what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives to the pro-life position? And that's where I'm going to challenge my own view. Not with weak arguments, but hopefully with the strongest arguments. So let's look at that first question. What is the unborn? If you've read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, can I see your hands? Do you know, you know that book? Okay. American literature. Huck Finn is an energetic 11, 12-year-old boy. He's out on adventures, and he happens to show up at the property of Aunt Sally. And Aunt Sally's mixed up. Aunt Sally sees Huck coming down the road, and, and she thinks it's Tom Sawyer. And she rushes up to him, throws his, her arms around him, and says, Where have you been, my boy? I've been waiting for you. Where have you been? And Huck doesn't know what to do. He's a young kid. And he just blurts out a lie. He says, Well, ma'am, we, we, we were on a steamboat. It, it, it blew a cylinder head. That's why we're late. Complete lie. Aunt Sally says, was anybody hurt? No, ma'am. It killed a Negro, but nobody got hurt. Well, that's good, said Aunt Sally, because sometimes people do get hurt. What was just assumed about the black man? That he wasn't one of us. It wasn't argued for. It was simply assumed. The great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis said the most dangerous ideas in the culture are not those that are spelled out. They're the ones the culture takes. They simply assume it without ever looking at it and trying to figure out, is this a valid point of view? And the assumption that the unborn are not human is very prevalent in the debate over abortion. Most of the arguments used to defend abortion at the street level are arguments that don't make a case against the humanity of the unborn. They simply assume the inhumanity of the unborn. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, uh, four years ago now, three, four years ago now, the President of the United States on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade said the following in making note of that day. He said, today is a day that all Americans should celebrate. Mm -hmm. Why is that, Mr. President? Listen to his explanation. Because, quote, this is a nation where everyone gets to pursue their own dreams, end quote. What was just assumed about the unborn? Was it yeah. Mr. President, with total respect for your office, does, quote, everyone, unquote, include the unborn? Do they get to pursue a lifetime ahead of them? You see, it was just assumed they're not one of us. It wasn't argued for. It was simply assumed. Now, lest you think I'm being partisan, let me jump over to the other side of the aisle, to the Republican side. Senator Orrin Hatch was defending the destruction of human embryos for medical research. 
In other words, he was defending and advocating that we fund federally a procedure where we take human embryos at around the 17 to 21 day stage, strip the DNA, strip the cellular structure from them, and use the stem cells, the basic building blocks of the body, to transplant into the bodies of people suffering from illness. And here's what he said in defense of that procedure. It would be a shame in this nation today to deny people cures because of some abstract moral principle. What did he just assume about the, the embryos in question? Would he ever make that argument if we were talking about killing two-year-olds to benefit five-year-olds? No. He only made that argument because he assumed, didn't argue for it, simply assumed the unborn were not human. And that is the question we need to answer. You can't answer the question, can we kill the unborn, till you answer the predicate question, what is the unborn? I have surprised people when I've been asked, are you pro-choice? And here's what I have said. I am vigorously pro-choice on women choosing their own worldview, their own husbands, their own careers, the cars they want to drive, the healthcare providers they wish to use, the pets they want to own. I'm pro-choice on all those issues. But some choices are wrong, like intentionally killing an innocent human being simply because he's in the way of something we want. However, if it can be demonstrated that the unborn are not human, I have no opposition to abortion whatsoever. And you know why I think that's important, men and women? This is not a debate between those who are pro-choice and those who are anti-choice. Everybody in this room is anti-choice on a whole lot of things. For example, spousal abuse, dumping toxins in our nation's river. These are things that we are not, and we're not pro-choice on these things, we're anti-choice on them. What is the difference between the pro-life advocate and the pro-choice advocate? It's simply this. They don't agree on the status of the unborn. That's the issue that we have to deal with. You've got to deal with the question, what is the unborn, before you answer the question, can we kill the unborn? And until that question is answered, you're not being intellectually fair with the issue in this debate. Well, ask yourself this. Would anybody you know argue for trusting women to make their own decisions if we were talking about killing two-year-olds? Would they ever argue that we should give people a right to privacy if they want to take their toddlers into the privacy of the bedroom and rough them up? Nobody would. So why do they argue that way with a human fetus? I'll tell you why. Because they simply assume it's not one of us. It's not argued for. It's simply assumed. I'm going to answer the question. What is the unborn? And again, I'm not going to go to the Bible. What is the unborn? Here's what the science of embryology tells you. From the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. Hold your hand up like this, if you would, and give yourself a good pinch on the back of your hand. Give yourself a, if your neighbor's not doing it, grab skin cells off the back of his neck or something. But give yourself a good pinch. Congratulations, you just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the lap in, or desk in front of you. Now, I have bad news. Every one of those cells, individually, contains your entire DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? Yes. 
Maybe. Let me relieve you, sir. You're going to feel real good before the night's over. You did not. And here's why. These cells on the back of your hand that you just killed are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were at the embryonic stage, the way I was at the embryonic stage. There's a difference in kind between cells that are merely part of a larger human being and the embryo, which is already a distinct living whole human being. And this is the distinction a lot of people miss. They say, well, you're, you're against killing? Well, what about sperm and egg? They're alive. That confuses parts with wholes. Sperm and egg are parts of larger human entities, while the embryo is already a distinct living whole human being. It's distinct in that it's not part of the mother. It has its own DNA, own blood type in many cases. It's living because dead things don't grow. And it's whole, meaning the kind of thing it is is not in question, though it does have yet to mature and grow. That's the science of embryology, stated as clearly as I know to put it. Now, that science of embryology is challenged by some people. So let me go over just a few of the challenges you'll get. The first one you'll get is the twinning example. Why that embryo can split into two. Up until 17, 20, 21 days after fertilization, that embryo could split into two. How can you claim that's a whole living member of the human family when it can split into two? Question, how does it follow that because a living organism splits, that it wasn't a whole living entity prior to the split? Has anybody in this room ever sliced a, a flatworm in half? Can I see your hands? Flat a flatworm. Have you ever cut a flatworm? The mass murderers are identifying themselves. Okay, good. Now, what did you get when you cut that flatworm in half? Two worms. Two worms. Did it follow there was no worm prior to the split? So the fact that the entity may split doesn't mean it wasn't a whole living member prior to the split. Another objection you'll get, and one you need to be sensitive to, goes like this. Women don't grieve miscarriages the way they grieve the deaths of newborns and older siblings. Now, before you say, well, I know women who do, and you're right, there are women who have suffered miscarriage, and for any of you that are here today who've walked through that, I'm truly really sorry you've had to walk through that. That's very, very painful. The question then becomes this. Let's say it's true we don't grieve miscarriages the way we grieve the death of a newborn. Let's just grant that's true, though I know it's not always the case. How do my feelings about something change what it is? Suppose I got a text message during the break we're going to take in five and a half hours that told that was a joke. <laughs> Did not work. Um, suppose I get a text message later tonight that says one of my own kids has died. Am I going to feel worse about that than reading in the headlines today that 500 kids died in India from mal malnutrition? I'm going to feel worse about my own kid, right? Does it follow my own kid is more human and valuable than those children? No. It just means I'm emotionally connected to my own <coughs> offspring. It doesn't mean they're less human. Another one you'll get is that nature, or maybe God, depending on who you're talking to, that nature or God is the biggest abortionist in the universe. Because up to two-thirds of all conceptions spontaneously abort, and the woman doesn't even know she's pregnant. And the argument goes that if nature is provoking these miscarriages or natural abortions, why are we so worked up about elective abortion? Question, how does it follow 
that because nature spontaneously triggers a miscarriage, that A, the embryos in question are not human beings, or B, we may intentionally kill them. In other words, there are countries in this school, in this na- or in this world today, in this school, uh, yeah, there probably are. Uh, in this in this world today, there are nations where the infant mortality rate is horrendous. Children die within three weeks of being born, in large number. Does it follow those humans that die sooner are less human and valuable than those who die later? In other words, how does this refute our syllogism that the unborn are human and that intentionally killing them is wrong? And then finally, one that was very popular last fall, you may have seen this, it was put forward by a um, comedian by the name of, I want to say, Jim Tomlinson. I think the first name's right. The last name is right. Tomlinson. Patrick Tomlinson. Patrick Tomlinson. Thank you. And he actually thought he had come up with the argument that would forever defeat the pro-life position. There was one little problem with it. He actually stole it from three other thinkers who he gave no credit to, who came up with it 20 years before he did. But here's the argument. You're in a burning research lab, a fertility lab, and it's an inferno. In this corner is a newborn baby. In this corner over here is a thousand embryos. You can either save the newborn, or I think in his example, the five-year-old girl, or the thousand embryos. Which are you going to save? Where are we all going? We're going to go save the five-year-old. Or newborn, depending however you want to look at this. And his response is, see, even you don't believe these embryos are human. Because if you did, you would at least consider saving them. But you don't. There goes your whole case. This went wild on Twitter. As if we had forever obliterated the pro-life position. There's a huge problem with this argument. Just gargantuan problem. What is his example about? Who we may intentionally kill or who we should save first? Which is, what is it about? Who we save first. This argument does nothing to justify intentionally killing an innocent human being. It talks to, well, who ought we save given the scenario in front of us? That is very different than permission to say we can kill a particular human being. There's another problem, though. In this case, is it possible that I might save the five-year-old for reasons that have nothing to do with her being more valuable than the embryos? (coughs) What does the president have in terms of security? What do we call those guys? Secret service. Will the secret service take a bullet for the president, but not you? Yes. By the way, the Secret Service will save the president over an entire city. If Washington, D.C. was going to be nuked, they're getting the president out and they're leaving you alone. Does that mean the president has more of a right to life than you because the Secret Service saves him, not you? No, it just means the consequences of losing the president are catastrophic for the nation. So, with that consideration, they save him first. It doesn't mean he has more intrinsic dignity, that he's more human than you, or that he has more value than you, at least at the intrinsic level. It just means the consequences of losing him are greater. Let's turn this example around. This building is on fire. I can save all of you or my 17-year-old daughter, Emily Rose. Who is going to burn? You're done. You're toast. Now, I won't shoot you on the way out. 
But I'm going to save her first because I'm her dad, right? Or how about this? Those embryos are my embryos. There's 20 embryos. There's the five-year-old. Get the right side of the room right here. Over there, there's 20 frozen embryos, but they're my embryos. What if the parent saves the embryos? Does that mean the five-year-old isn't human? You see how this works? <coughs> who we save tells us nothing about who we can intentionally kill. But there is one reason why I think the question, what is the unborn, is tough for some people. And this, I think, is legitimate, at least on the face of it. People look at, it there, at that early embryo, a picture of it. Have you ever seen one? You, you can't even see it with the naked eye. It's smaller than the size of a dot at the end of a sentence. And people say, I just can't connect with that thing being one of us. I actually have a bit of sympathy for this because our intuitions don't naturally go there, right? But what if our intuitions are wrong here? What if they're misinformed? And to borrow an example from philosopher Richard Stiff, I want you to pretend that we are back in the dark ages, students pay particular attention to this, when we actually had things called cameras that we took pictures with rather than phones. We did not take pictures of our meals and our food when I was growing up. <laughs> cameras were these rectangular things with a shutter on them. The light would come through when you snap the picture. It would record the image on the film. And the way it worked for you youngins, the way it would work is when you shot 36 exposures, you would take the film out of the camera, you would put it in a little canister, you'd drive to the far corner of the neighborhood supermarket where there was a little yellow shack called Photomat, you would drop your photos off, wait a month and a half for them to be developed, and half of them come back overexposed. That's the way it was, men and women. In 1970, Kodak partially addressed this problem. They came out with the Polaroid camera. How many of you have current Polaroid cameras, the cool-looking slick ones? Let me uh, tell you something. Most assuredly, the old ones did not look cool and sleek. They looked so bad, they looked like something Satan designed. But they had an advantage. You didn't have to wait a month and a half for your pictures. You'd shoot the picture. It would spit out a piece of paper. A couple of you are doing the muscle memory already. You'd pull it out and shake it, right? And two minutes later, you had your photograph. To borrow from Stith, imagine that you are on a Mexican safari in 1970. You have a Polaroid camera. You just shot a picture of a black jaguar leaping across the trail in front of us. You're beside yourself with elation. Nobody films black jags. You just got it. And you know National Geographic pays huge bucks for that pic. You shoot the picture. You're trembling with excitement, and while you're waiting, I come up to you, I rip the camera out of your hands, I yank the paper out of it, and I tear it up. Are you angry at me? You will kill me even if you are pro-life, right? You're not going to be happy. What if I replied, what's the big deal? There's no Jaguar there. That was just a white paper with a brown smudge on it. You'd look at me incredulous and you'd say, are you crazy? The jaguar in the picture was already there. We just couldn't see him because he was still developing. From the one cell stage, men and women, you were already there. We just couldn't see you because you were still developing. That's the science of embryology. What is abortion? I defined it as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. 
And some might be tempted to think that that definition unfairly begs the question in favor of the pro-life advocate. But actually, I'm not relying on my definition of abortion, intentionally killing an innocent human being, on pro-life sources. I've decided to exclude them from this presentation. I will only rely on sources that oppose my view. For example, Dr. Warren Hearn, who has written the book Abortion Practice, this is the medical teaching text that teaches abortion procedures, told a Planned Parenthood medical conference the following about the abortion procedure involving dilatation and evacuation. He said, quote, we have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denying an act of destruction. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. Does that sound like intentional killing? That we cannot deny it's an act of destruction? Naomi Wolf, a feminist who supports abortion, wrote a New, Re New Republic article where she said the following, clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions, and we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with, being callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. And then listen to this last sentence. We need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion within a moral framework that admits that the death of the fetus is a real death. Hmm. Feminist Camille Padilla, quote, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not mere clumps of insensate tissue. Whoa. I mean, she is not one of us if you're pro-life, but her candor is greatly appreciated. How many of you saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge that came out last year, the story of Desmond Dawes? Okay, good. By the way, I met him when I was a boy. I'll tell you about that some other time. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Schindler's List, um, Passion of the Christ. Okay, I think most of us in this room, maybe Dunkirk, most of us have seen movies that were pretty tough viewing and involved some pretty graphic scenery. And outside of Dunkirk, those other four we talked about contained sequences that were so brutal and so disturbing that the first time you saw those movies, if you weren't thrown back, something's wrong with you. The Passion of the Christ. 103 minutes of gruesome imagery. And yet, educators, teachers, and parents wanted children to see these films. In fact, the LA Times editorialized that elementary age kids should go see Schindler's List despite its brutality because the LA Times critic uh, argued that if children didn't see the Holocaust, they'd have no true appreciation of it. I'm actually sympathetic to that view and think the same applies to the topic of abortion. What is abortion? We defined it as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. The quotes I just read from those on the other side of this issue affirm that. What I'm going to do in just a minute is roll a very short video clip. It's 55 seconds long. 
You can avoid its contents by simply looking away. Nobody will think badly if you just say, I don't wanna watch this. Let me tell you exactly what's in it so you can have an informed choice. The clip you're about to see will not show you an abortion from start to finish, but it is going to show you the aftermath and it's going to be troubling for you to view. You will see first, second, and third trimester human fetuses that have been aborted. If you wish not to watch again, we've done a courtesy to you. We've pulled the narration. You won't even hear a description of what's on the screen and I will not describe it. You can simply look away. Second, and please hear me. I told you I was not going to bring religion into making my case for the pro-life view, but I want you for a moment to allow me to say something before I show this clip. I am not here at this university to beat up on people who may have had an experience with abortion. And you might think, well, that's really strange. You're here trying to make the case that abortion's wrong, right? I mean, I heard your syllogism. Yeah, I am. And the reason why I'm doing that is I want to get at the truth. However, it does not follow that because I'm pursuing the truth that I hate people who've had abortions. And let me tell you why that's most certainly not the case that I hate people who've had abortions. I am a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe as a Christian that all of us in this room have a major problem. We are rebels against our creator. And it doesn't matter if we've done things that some would call horrific or done things that are not so horrific, though all sins are not equal, we all have the same problem of not being on the right page with our maker. And the gospel is the story of how God creates a good world. We rebel against him. And God, who would have been just to wipe out the race for its rebellion, sends Jesus to bear in full the judgment we deserve. The good news of the gospel is that if you've had an experience with abortion, Jesus came to bear the sin that you've engaged in. And God proved that his sin-bearing sacrifice was sufficient for our sins because he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. But the news gets even better. For those who trust in Jesus to forgive their sins, God the Father is no longer their judge. The Bible says he's their dad and he adopts them into his family as dearly loved children. So if you're wondering where I'm at on this issue, the reason I don't hold a grudge against people who've sinned on the issue of abortion, they have the same problem I had. I was in rebellion against my maker. I needed a savior to take the judgment I deserved. And the message of the Christian gospel is you can find that forgiveness in the work and person of Christ. So if you're here tonight, and this is kind of hitting close to home for you, I want you to know I'm available to talk to you afterward. And I'm available to help point you to the solution, to the guilt that all of us have to deal with. Every worldview in the world has to deal with two questions. What's wrong with us and what's the fix? I don't care what your worldview is. Eastern, Western, Christian, atheist. Everybody's got to answer those two questions. Feminist Kath Apollot says, the problem with this is we apologize for abortion. It's no different than vacuuming out your house. The Christian worldview says, no, our actions have consequences. Our ideas can be badly misinformed. And therefore, the fix that we need is found in the forgiveness that's given us in Christ. So that's where I stand on this issue. And that's why even if you've had an abortion, a guy who encouraged a girl to abort or a woman who chose that because you didn't think you had another way out, I'm glad you're here tonight. We're not here to beat you up. I just want to get at the truth. 
So with that in mind, we're gonna take a minute, we're gonna roll this clip, and if you wanna look away, you feel the freedom to do that, and then I'll jump into the final two questions, which I'll wrap up very quickly, and I'll take your questions after that. So, Clinton, uh, can we lower the lights to afford privacy if people want it? Is that doable? This is gruesome stuff, and it's easy to think, man, do we really need to show this kind of stuff to have an intellectually honest debate about abortion? And I'm reminded of a historical event that happened in 1955 when an African-American boy who was only 14 visited the town of Money, Mississippi and went to go visit his cousin. And while he was down there, he begins to brag about his two white girlfriends back in Chicago. They're not hearing it. They're like, we don't even talk to white girls down here, let alone date them. You're lying. He said, no, I'm telling you the truth. And that day, that afternoon, the cousin and his friends challenged this African-American boy to go talk to a white woman there in Money, Mississippi. And Emmett Till walked into Bryant's grocery store, as reported in the series Eyes on the Prize, and he walked in, purchased a piece of gum from a 21-year-old white <coughs> married woman, flashed her a flirtatious smile and said, thanks, babe. And some accounts say that he may have whistled at her. But innocent. We think it's innocent anyway. A couple of nights later, that boy is taken at gunpoint from his uncle's home by the woman's husband and another man. They drive him outside Money, Mississippi, and after savagely beating this boy, breaking nearly every bone in his upper torso, disfiguring his face, they finish him with a shot to the head. The sheriff finds the corpse three to four days later, presumably, <coughs> cannot believe the sight of this kid. He doesn't even put Emmett in a coffin. He puts him in a box, just a wooden box puts the seal of the sheriff on there that the casket is to remain shut, and he ships the body back to Mamie Till, Emmett's mother in Chicago. And when Mamie Till got the body, the press in Chicago gathers around her and says, what are you gonna do? And she shocked the world with an announcement. She said, we're having a casket funeral for my boy, but that casket's going to be opened. <coughs> oh man, newspapers went ballistic. You can't do this. You'll offend people. You'll get people angry at you. And she says, I know, but I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And Jet Magazine published that photo, that black and white photo, which you can look at tonight when you leave. And that picture was published nationally, and many historians agree it played a very significant role launching the civil rights movement in this country. And the same, I would say, is true of the issue we're talking about today. There are millions of Americans who will never take a good look at what's at stake in this debate if they never have to look at the injustice that remains hidden. And my argument would be, we've got a duty to lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion if we're going to have an honest dialogue about this in this country. We've got to be honest in the Socratic quest for truth. But at the same time, I want to tell you again that I have great hope for people who are wounded by abortion, that they can find the healing they need in the person of Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And I take, would take great honor to talk to anybody tonight who wants to unpack that and talk about that a little bit. Next question, third, and we'll wrap up very quickly. What makes humans valuable? Don't do it just yet. I want you to wait a minute. But in just a moment, I'm gonna have you look around the room and stare at some people, okay? Now guys, or girls, I suppose, if there's a cute person you've been dying to make eye contact with, uh, this will be a God-sanctified moment to do it, okay? So get ready, 
One, two, three, stare. Do not look at me, gentlemen. I'm in the wrong place to be looking, all right? <laughs> all right. I look back this way. What makes us equal? Would you agree that we live in a culture obsessed with equality? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Marriage equality, income equality, social equality. I mean, everybody wants it. My question is fundamental. What makes us equal in the first place? Are we all physically equal here tonight? Yes. No. No. I assure you most assuredly no. At age 57 last September, I did something my wife thought was suicidal. I went back to my high school where I played on the basketball team, and I played on the alumni team against the current student basketball team. Do not laugh. We beat them by 24 points. And, and... Yours truly took one shot in the game. It was a three-pointer from the corner. Nothing but net, baby. And I hit, I got one rebound and two assists. Now, I consider that a huge success because my goal for the day was avoid hospitalization. <laughs> if I had to go one-on-one -on -one with some of you I'm looking at right now, probably a lot of you, I'd be toast. I'm not fast the way I used to be. I used to be able to dunk a volleyball. I can barely touch the net on the rim now. That's how bad it's become. I do not match you physically. My development is no longer where it once was. If Planned Parenthood is right that development gives us value and you have more of it than me, you have more of a right to life than I do. It follows. If self-awareness is what gives us value, some of you, didn't you have caffeine before coming up here to talk? You had your shot of coffee and it's okay. Uh, in the morning, I'm an agnostic until my second cup, so don't feel bad if that's you, all right? Um, any pastors here, I will not be speaking at their churches ever. <laughs> the caffeine helps your self-awareness or maybe Diet Coke, whatever it is, your beverage of choice. If self-awareness gives us value and you have more of it than me, you have a greater right to life. There's one thing we all share equally in this room. Just one. We all have the same human nature. Now, what's a human nature? Because some people say, well, that sounds really philosophical. Your human nature is what makes you a human and not a cat. Human has a human nature. Dog has a dog nature. Cat, as I have recently learned, has a satanic nature. But you get the idea. Um, your nature determines the kind of thing you are. It sets your parameters, it sets your ultimate capacities, and determines the kind of species you're part of. Now people will say things like, okay, well, duh, I get that, you and I have a human nature, but not that embryo, not that embryo. <clears throat> and my question is, I hope pretty straightforward. How do two human parents create offspring that isn't human, but later becomes so? To quote Ricky Ricardo, a world-class philosopher, they have some splaining to do. How is this even possible? When did you get your human nature? The moment you began to exist. When did you begin to exist? Well, the science of embryology says you began to exist at the moment of fertilization. A colleague of mine, Stephen Schwartz, says there's four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, and none of them are good reasons for saying you could be killed then, but not now. There's a difference of size, a difference of level of development, a difference of environment, meaning where you're located, 
and a difference of degree of dependency. He recommends the acronym SLED to kind of remember these four differences, and I think it's a helpful tool to help keep them in mind. Size, you were certainly smaller as an embryo, but as a matter of principle, does body size determine value? We don't think that men, just because they tend to be larger than women, happen to have more rights than women because of body size. Now, it was a little funny yesterday. <laughs> I'm doing chapel at Biola, and I make, a, I make that observation, and I say men don't have more rights than women simply because they're larger, and I hear this guy under his breath three rows down say, well, I think they do, and I picked on him. I said to the crowd, sir, we now know while you will never be married. <laughs> attempt to bond with my audience and it didn't work then either. Now, what about level of development? You were less developed as an embryo. But why does that matter? Let me pause for a minute. We need to get past the point of just accepting assertions. Somebody asserts that the embryo does not have a right to life because it's not self-aware and typically those of you that are pro-life, you've heard other pro-lifers do this, you'll hear the following. Why the brain develops by week six and why the fetus is dreaming by week eight and nine and can feel pain very early. Wrong answer, wrong answer. We do not argue that the unborn have a right to life because they feel things or dream things or any of that. We argue they have a right to life simply because they're human beings, whatever their stage of development. That's our case for human equality. When you start buying the premise of the other side, what you end up doing then is you play defense because now you're arguing on their turf. When somebody says to me that level of development matters, the first word out of my mouth is why? So? Yes, that embryo is less developed. So? I spoke yesterday to a group of a couple hundred teenagers at a high school in the Antelope Valley, and I said to those students, you are less developed than your parents. You are less developed than your parents physically and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which came as a complete shock to them. <laughs> but you don't reach your intellectual peak till much later in life, mid-40s. Does it follow your parents have a greater right to life? You see the problem with this? By the way, this is exactly what Abraham Lincoln did on the issue of slavery. Lincoln's debate opponents would argue that that black man differs from us. And you know what Lincoln's response was? It was one word. You want to guess what it is? So, Lincoln said to his opponents, and I'll quote him almost word for word. When Lincoln's opponents would point out that that black man differs from us, Lincoln said the following, quote, or almost quote, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then? The fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man? Take care, by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it is not skin color, it's a matter of intellect. The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care again, by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. You say it isn't skin color, it isn't, inter or it isn't uh, intellect, it's interest. The white man having it in his interest to enslave the dark man, take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet who can make it his interest to enslave you. Did you just catch what Lincoln did there? The same arguments used to disqualify the slave worked real well for whites. In the debate over abortion, your more honest pro-choice philosophers will readily admit 
that the arguments used to justify abortion work equally well for killing newborns. Peter Singer, the ethicist at Princeton University who wrote the book Practical Ethics, standard teaching text in graduate schools worldwide, has written that no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth and disabled infants can be killed on the spot by the attending physician. And then he looks at Planned Parenthood and says, you're inconsistent. You draw an arbitrary line at birth and it's a, meaningful, it's a meaningless line. And he goes on to say, fetus is not self-aware, newborn isn't self-aware, you can kill both. Now, you should be appalled by his conclusion, but do you see the consistency of his premises? At least he's being intellectually honest. In other words, these arguments prove too much. I'll say more about that in a minute. Size, level of development, environment, and finally, uh, or size, level of development, and now environment. If you drove at least seven miles to get here, can I see your hands? Oh, man. 30 miles. 30? Yeah. Ooh, all right. Anybody beat 30? <laughs> all right. Well, I flew 2,500, so there. <laughs> now, I'll take you. If a journey of 30 miles didn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being that we cannot? I would say it doesn't. Right answer, sir. In other words, a change of location does not change you fundamentally. There's no real difference, says Peter Singer, between that child in the womb and that child that's been born, none that would justify killing one but not the other. Size, level of development, environment. What about degree of dependency? And the question is, does dependency on another human being mean we can kill you? Now, I live in Noonan, Georgia. You've never heard of it. But Noonan, Georgia is where they film the wildly popular TV show, The Walking Dead. Anybody here watch The Walking Dead and fans? Okay. Do you agree with me that season seven jumped the shark? Does anybody else feel that way? I do. I think it's toast, but that's another question. For those of you that have not watched The Walking Dead, do not go home tonight and say, honey, let's have a gentle date night and flip on The Walking Dead on Netflix. It's a zombie series, and it is brutal, all right? It is very brutal and bloody. However, the worldview themes in it are unbelievable, and I've enjoyed, up until season seven, most of the show. The hero of the show is Rick Grimes. He's a sheriff. And in season one, he's in a gunfight with crooks. He gets hit with gunfire, and he's in a coma for a month. And while he's in the coma, the zombie apocalypse breaks out, and he wakes up in the hospital all alone. And the world he once knew is gone. And somehow the walkers, the zombies, came through that hospital and missed him. And he wakes up, nobody stayed to care for him. And season one of The Walking Dead, if you don't want to go watch it, here's the plot. Rick wakes up and has to figure out what happened to my family, what happened to my son, what happened to the world I once knew. Once knew. That's season one of The Walking Dead. Let's change the script. One doctor stays behind to care for Rick. Rick depends totally on him for survival. Can that doctor kill Rick, intentionally kill him, simply because Rick depends on him? I hope you say no. Size, level of development, environment, where we're at, degree of dependency, those are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then but not now. I'll end with this. I want to throw two challenges at my own view. 
My own view has been that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion does that, therefore abortion's wrong. And I wanna challenge my own position with what I think are the two most formidable challenges. And then I'll say a few words. I won't go into it terribly deep. I'll say more about it in Q&A if you want me to. But I'll give you just a few thoughts on each, why I think that ultimately they don't succeed. But nevertheless, what I appreciate about both of these challenges, they are from thoughtful people, and they are making a serious contribution to the overall debate, and I can appreciate that. What is hard for me to appreciate is people who are not serious, like the guy who throws at us on Twitter the burning research fertility lab. That's just not a serious objection. These are serious objections. Here is the first. Judith Jarvis Thompson, professor at MIT, wrote an essay in 1971 called A Defense of Abortion, where she said, let's agree, for the sake of argument, that the unborn are human and have a right to life. And let's agree, for the sake of argument, that because they have a right to life, they are persons. However, does it follow that because you have a right to life, you may use the body of another person to sustain your own life if that other person wishes to withhold support? <clears throat> and then to illustrate her position, she says, imagine you wake up one morning and you've been surgically connected to a world-famous violinist who has a kidney element, ailment, pardon me, and uh, he needs your body for nine months to survive. And after nine months, you will be free to go, and the medical staff has done a database search. You alone are a match for him, and while you were sleeping, you were kidnapped and hooked up to him, because after all, he's a person with a right to life, and you're the only one who can sustain him. And then Thompson says, imagine the medical staff saying to you, we're sorry this happened to you, but too bad. For nine months, tough luck. Then she raises this question. It would certainly be nice if you let yourself be used that way, but must you? This should throw you back a little bit. This should cause you to go, ooh, that's... I mean, when somebody looks you in the eye and says, I'll grant your premise and your argument still loses, that's a bold challenge. She's looked pro-lifers in the eye, accepted our major premise, and said, you're still wrong. All right? So let me give you just a few thoughts about this, and then I'll save any other comments for the Q&A. In this particular case, if being hooked up to that violinist is parallel in morally relevant ways to a mother being hooked up to her own child, I think her case is unassailable. I think it wins. If, however, there are significant differences, I think her case collapses. And as you might think, I do think the parallels collapse. Let me just give you a couple, and then I'll save the rest for later. First of all, what's killing the violinist in her analogy? What is it that's killing her? Killing him. His underlying pathology, right? What kills the unborn in the act of abortion? The intentional act of the killing. So in one case, you have a situation where the violinist will die from his underlying ailment, in the other case, we're going to intentionally kill an innocent human being. As Barnard Nathanson said, it's one thing to withhold support. It's quite another to slit your victim's throat in the name of withholding support. Uh, another problem, 
Is abortion merely the withholding of support? Or is it something else? My colleague Frank Beckwith says calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. There's a lot more going on than merely withholding support. Um, I would also add something Stephen Schwartz has pointed out, that the very thing that makes Thompson's scenario seem plausible to us, namely that the violinist is a stranger unnaturally hooked up to the mother, is precisely the thing that is not the case in the mother's relationship to her own child. And Schwartz asks a great question. If the child doesn't belong in the womb, where does he belong? And Thompson doesn't really engage that question. So there's just a few thoughts about Thompson's point of view, and I'll say more if you want me to in the Q&A. The next challenge is one that I find quite substantial as well. It's David Boonin's book, A Defense of Abortion. Isn't it interesting that both these titles are called A Defense of Abortion? And what I appreciate, appreciate about David Boonin, David Boonin is a philosopher. David Boonin is not interested in being a flamethrower. In fact, Clinton Wilcox, who's sitting up here, went to Colorado, University of Colorado, a number of years ago, what, three, four years ago? Uh, yeah, three or four years ago. And went and visited David Boonin, and David Boonin was quite happy to invite him in to have a nice conversation. And so was Michael Tooley, another guy who I don't agree with, but there are people, for those of you that are pro-life, there are people on the other side who are thoughtful, I don't hold their view, I think they're mistaken, but they're not the street activists who just want to shout you down. They're actually more interested in having conversations, and I would put David Boonin in that category. David Boonin argues this. You and I are identical to the embryos we once were. Whoa. Okay, stop right there. Has he just conceded a major premise of ours? You better believe it. You and I are identical to the embryos we once were. That was not a clump of cells back there, says David Boonin. That was you at the one cell stage. However, just because you're identical to the embryo you once were does not mean you have the same right to life then as you do now. And what gives you a right to life now as opposed to then is that right now you have organized cortical brain function that can support immediately exercisable desires. For Boonin, having current desires is what gives you a right to life. And if you are killed before you have desires, before you can desire to go on living, for example, then you're not really robbed of anything if you're killed. So even though you're identical to the embryo you once were, it doesn't follow that you uh, have the same right to life then as you do now. Everybody following his argument? And by the way, to make sure we get it, he personalizes it. In the opening chapter of his book, to paraphrase what he says about his own son Eli, he talks about how he has a series of pictures of his son Eli. One taken about six months after birth, one taken shortly after birth, and a photograph, a sonogram image of Eli in the womb at about six months or so. And Boonin says this, in each of those photographs, you're looking at the same little boy. Same little boy. And the thesis I'm advancing in this book is that it would have been perfectly permissible to have ended his life in that sonogram image place. Whoa. I mean, that, that's making it personal, right? So let's unpack Boonin a little bit. Immediately exercisable or current desires gives you a right to life. I'll toss out a few questions. 
Why is having desires value giving in the first place? Do you think Boonin might have to answer that question? I think so, and he doesn't. Why is having desires the thing that gives us a right to life and not having a belly button that points out rather than in? It seems arbitrary to me. Secondly, his position proves too much. Not only are our fetuses not desiring anything, newborns don't desire anything. Because newborns do not have desires until several weeks or maybe months after birth, and here's why. To have desires, you have to have belief and judgment. You have to believe something is the case and make a judgment about it. I'm sorry, newborns don't have that. So his argument doesn't just end abortion, the life of the unborn through abortion. It would end the life of newborns through infanticide. Third problem, it results in savage inequality. Um, if having desires is what gives us the right to life and you have more of a capacity for that than I do, you have a greater right to life than I do. I mean, just in this room tonight, I'm willing to bet that some of you have had a great year, everything's breaking your way, and as you look toward the future, you're, you're feeling real optimistic. And others of you, you've had a year from hell. Relationships have collapsed, life has fallen apart, you're not suicidal, but come on, you're not exactly desiring to move forward at a, at a, a light year clip, right? If having desires is what gives us our right to life, those of you with more of it have a greater right to life than those with less. But I think there's some counterexamples too that work against Boone. What if a surgeon, to borrow an example from Frank Beckwith, alters the brain of a developing fetus at around five months before Boonin says that child can experience desires? The, the child's brain is altered. It will never desire anything. It lives, but will never desire anything. When the child is five, he is killed so that his body parts can be transplanted into the bodies of people suffering from illness. Now, when the child is killed, he doesn't desire anything. On Boonin's argument, would it be wrong to kill that child? No. Because if desires are what give us our value, and you don't have any, then what's the problem? But I think Boonin would want to say it's wrong. Or suppose I damage my brain pretending I can build houses. Now, I'm pretty good with a wrench. I have a 66 Mustang. I can keep that thing running. You want me to yank a tranny? No problem. You want me to build a simple cabinet for my wife to display some pictures on? I'm a disaster. But suppose I want to be Tim the Tool Guy. I go down to Home Depot, buy one of those air compressors with the um, staple gun that you fire into the, the stud instead of the hammer. You know, you know what I'm talking about? What's the name for those things? I don't even know what they're Nail gun. Nail gun. Nail gun. But I don't shoot the board. I shoot myself in the head. I live, but I damage the part of my brain that controls desires. I never desire anything again. Under Boonin's argument here, do I still have a right to life? I don't see how. I don't see how. So I think his argument proves too much, results in savage inequality, and really leaves us with a diminished view of the human person. All right, those are, uh, that's my case. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. And what I wanna do now is uh, let you ask anything you want about the case I made, and I will do my best to, to answer them. You're up first. Okay, I actually, I'll make it quick. I have two questions. Um, one is, if abortion is murder, right, Yeah. Uh, would you um, support the death penalty for abortion, either for the abortionist or, or the responsible party, either the person who may have coerced someone into an abortion or the person who got it themselves? And the other question 
also related to the level of development, because you brought that up. It, if, if abortion is wrong, and most abortions, to my knowledge, occur fairly early in the development, then would not um, abortive fashions, as the term often used for that, like the morning after pill or other forms of contraception that would destroy uh, the, the sperm and the egg for cues together, would, would not also those be wrong, too? Well, I love it. Let's just jump right into it. Okay. So those are my questions. All right. About legal, legal penalties. Should a woman who has had an abortion be prosecuted? All right? Like pro-lifers had, have said, we should prosecute the doctor. My answer is that depends on whether there's been a meeting of the minds. In order to prove co-conspiracy in a case like this, you would have to prove that the mother's knowledge of the act matched the doctor's knowledge of the act who's willing to perform the procedure. If you don't prove that, and it's an incredibly tough threshold to cross, your case is not going to win. In fact, even today in cases of infanticide where uh, there is a situation where the mother kills her own child, the courts will weigh her relative knowledge level. And there are, women, there, there are women today who have killed their own children and are not in jail. Now, why is that? Doesn't mean I agree with that necessarily, but why is that? Well, the court is trying to figure out what is the knowledge base of the mother. Now, it gets even tougher when there's two agents involved. You've got the doctor and the mother. So the court will demand that they prove, that the uh, prosecution prove that in order to get co-conspiracy, there was a meeting of the minds. Her understanding matched his, and here's why they'll never be able to prove that. The doctor, for example, as Dr. Warren Hearn points out in his book, Abortion Practice, will connect a Doppler and listen to Hearn's, not, what he says in the book. This is the medical teaching text that teaches abortion techniques. Hearn says, when you perform the abortion, attach a Doppler to measure fetal heartbeat so you can know when you've killed the fetus, right? Because they don't want a live birth. Make sure, says Hearn, that Doppler is inaudible to the mother. That's intentionally making sure she doesn't know what he knows, right? So there's one example. Uh, other abortionists have talked about the necessity of turning the sonogram away from the woman during an abortion procedure so she does not see her child being dismembered during the procedure, which means, again, her knowledge is not going to match his. Further, he's been to medical school. He knows what the instruments look like, how they're used. She, in almost all cases, will not. And so the courts have set a level of threshold so high that to simply say the mother should be charged with murder, that's not going to work in today's legal system. But here's another reason why pro-lifers have been unwilling to prosecute the mother the same way they prosecute the doctor. Who's the only one who can testify against the doctor in most of these cases? The woman. So they give her immunity to get him. Now, some people think, well, that still doesn't work with me. Don't we do this all the time in narcotic cases? What, what's the thing you hear from the left all the time? Oh, don't prosecute the user. Prosecute who? The dealer. The dealer. But when it comes to abortion, they're all upset that we're proposing essentially the same thing. So, historically, what the courts have done <coughs> is said, we want to stop abortion. We're going to stop the source. We'll give the woman immunity. We're going to prosecute her, if at all, differently than we would the doctor. Now, I will say this. What's wrong with the law? that says that if you intentionally kill an innocent human being, there should be consequences. 
but as to what those consequences will be will depend on whether there's been a meeting of the minds. Does that make sense? Okay. Fair enough? Yeah, and the other question? Yeah, okay, yeah. You, you're not going to plan B, in other words? No, okay, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm on East Coast time, so the puns are just coming out whether they should or not, all right? My body is telling me it's what, almost midnight? Yeah. Um, plan B. I'm going to possibly get a few of my pro-life friends a little angry at me right now, but, but here goes. There is a debate among pro-life doctors about whether Plan B is indeed abortifacient. Here's the argument. The argument goes that some forms of birth control are not merely contraceptive, meaning they just prevent pregnancy. Some forms actually have a secondary mechanism that if breakthrough ovulation happens, meaning the woman gets pregnant despite being on the pill, that this secondary mechanism makes the lining of the uterine wall inhospitable to the developing embryo so it cannot successfully implant. And therefore, a miscarriage is triggered. You will find pro-life physicians, reputable pro-life physicians, divided on the question of whether <coughs> certain birth control pills and drug cocktails like Plan B do that. Uh, I'll give you both arguments and then tell you where I land. The first site says that these drugs, like I said, make the lining of the uterine wall thin out, thus causing the miscarriage. Therefore, if you're pro-life, you should not use them because you could indeed be contributing toward the death of an unborn human being. I mean, after all, if you believe life begins at fertilization, not implantation, then anything that interferes with that developing life would be equivalent to abortion, and I agree. The other pro-life doctors say no, the woman's lining at the uterine wall thins and thickens many times during pregnancy with no adverse effect on the developing human. And oh, by the way, they say, the peer-reviewed medical literature is not at all clear that these pills trigger abortion. Now the comeback from the other side is, wait a minute, the labeling itself says it causes this. Labeling is not evidence. How many of you have seen these drug commercials late at night when you're watching TV? Mm -hmm. Are you suffering from severe arthritis? <laughs> Take knee bone. You will feel great. Side effects include strokes, heart attacks, Crohn's disease, jumping off planes, jumping in front of trains, suicide, right? I mean, the guy's talking so fast you can't even hear him. Well, wh why is that? Is it because those are realistic expectations? No. You don't want to get sued as the manufacturer, right? So you're trying to cover your behind. That's what's going on. Now, when you look at the peer-reviewed evidence, here's what I would look toward for peer-reviewed evidence. Uh, medical journals like the American College of Obstetrics, American Journal of Obstetrics and, Gyne and Gynecology, British Medical Journal, The Lancet, Nature, journals that deal with this. And I will confess, though I'm not an MD, my viewing of that literature has led me to believe the jury is still out. So what can we say about these things? I think it's fine for pro-lifers to say, given it's at least plausible these drugs might end the life of a developing human being, we shouldn't just wholesale promote them, and maybe we should even act on the side of caution and not use them. Okay, I'm fine with that. What I'm not okay with are pro-lifers who say, these are abortion pills and we know it. Um, that's overstating our case. And by the way, we should be honest with the evidence, not bend it to suit our own needs. So I realize there will be, I've actually been attacked by pro-lifers for this. 
I got kicked out of a conference for saying this. So, uh, but I think we should follow the evidence where it leads and not overstate it. All right. Well, you started us off with a bang. <laughs> Who's up next? Yeah. Uh, I was kind of hoping you could also expand on uh, Thompson's other analogies in her essay. So she uses the, anal uh, the analogy, it's bizarre one, the people seed analogy, that if you leave a window open yeah. and the seed of a human being happens to sprout in your living room, yeah. are you obligated to leave it there until it grows and develops? Yeah, and she also uses the analogy of an intruder. Yeah. Okay. Here's the problem. There's no intruder until two humans get together and create him, right? So she's basically saying that because uh, this intruder was created by two parents, the parents now have the right to kill the intruder. Uh, that's just bizarre. I mean, other than in the case of rape, you have two consulting, consenting adults who get together. And this is why Marianne Warren, who supports abortion, said that Thompson's argument only works in the case of rape. Because any other time, there can be no mugger, to quote Eileen McDonough, or no people seeds, or no intruder, unless two humans get together and create him. So I don't think those analogies work at all. I think they're incredibly weak. And if they worked even remotely, it would be only in the case of rape. And the reason why that doesn't help Thompson, Thompson is not trying to argue for abortion in cases of rape. She's trying to say this justifies a right to an abortion for any reason based on bodily autonomy uh, and I think that's problematic a couple of other things yeah go ahead uh, John I thought you were Jonathan no go ahead I was just gonna say standing off of that what in the case of rape I'm gonna put yeah. it on your side but let's say your 17 year old daughter is brutally raped yeah and she comes to you and says dad what am I supposed to do like, yeah how do I handle this yeah what do you say to her yeah what do you do when it's your own daughter who's been raped now my answer here I want to make an observation my answer here uh, does not hinge on it being my daughter or not my daughter. In other words, the moral question is going to be the same uh, whether it's my daughter or not. Two types of people bring up rape, and you will discover this if you have not already. Uh, and by the way, I know you're not making the argument I'm about to discuss. You're just raising the question. The crusader will bring up rape, and the inquirer will bring up rape. The crusader does not want an answer. He just wants to make you look bad. The inquirer really does want an answer, and she's just trying to struggle through the moral logic. She actually agrees with your pro-life argument, but she says to herself, man, I've had friends that have been sexually assaulted, and man, I, I'm just having a hard time saying that I would have to force her to give birth to a kid who will remind her of something for the rest of her life. Now, by the way, can, can we just stop for a moment? Can we at least show some empathy for this woman? Mm -hmm. If you ever hear a pro-lifer tell you that if a woman just gives birth, everything will be okay, they do not know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, I'm going to grant that that child could cause painful memories for a very long time, and that the healing from that assault could take years. And I'm going to ask a fundamental question to the inquirer that will go like this. Given you and I agree that this woman has suffered terribly and has been subjected to an awful act, given you and I agree that she deserves our utmost care and compassion, how do you think a civil society 
should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? And I'm going to let the question hang there a minute. And then very gently I'll say, does hardship justify homicide? In other words, if killing you makes me feel better, can I do it? Now right away you see we've come back to the status, what is the unborn? If we had a two-year-old up here and his father was a rapist and somebody said, you know, the mother's really suffering. If we eliminate her suffering by eliminating the two-year-old, we could, she'd be all right. Are we going to go for that proposition? No, we'd say, well, he's a human being. You can't do that. Ah, then the real question here that we've got to come back to is the one we started with. What is the unborn? If the unborn are innocent human beings, they should not be intentionally killed to make someone else feel better. Uh, now, I, I want to be quite clear. I fully own that I am asking that mother and saying she should do something that will be incredibly difficult. And I am owning the fact that uh, there's no easy answer here, but no easy answer in terms of helping her feel better. Morally, I think there is an easy answer. But it is better to suffer evil, as Peter Kreft says, rather than inflict it. If, a, if some stranger dumps a ton of garbage on my front lawn, I can't just scoop it onto your lawn to be done with it. Uh, I will suffer the evil rather than, or to use an example, uh, one of my, well, both my boys when they were in the army were deployed, one to the DMZ in Korea and one in Afghanistan. Uh, and they were both deployed at the same time in the same year. Talk about a parent's uh, stress point. Um, so let me make up a scenario. My son Tyler, who was a combat engineer over there, he uh, was in combat twice. And one day they were out doing route clearance. Combat engineers go out in front of infantry, all right? They're out there a ways. And he takes, they're clearing, they're clearing routes, kicking indoors, making sure there's no Taliban hiding in there. What if they get ambushed and the Taliban captures him and they say, we're going to torture you and your fellow Americans that we've captured to get information out of you. But you as their leader, if you help us interrogate and torture your own men, we'll go light on you. Can he take that deal? He'll suffer evil rather than inflict it. Because sometimes the right thing to do isn't the easy thing to do. The crusader wants none of this moral logic. He just wants to make you look bad, intolerant, cruel, and he's going to look at you and say, you're going to force that woman who's been raped? How do you even call yourself a Christian when you would force her to go through hell for the rest of her life? Okay, I'm going to play a different game with him. I know for a fact his position is not that abortion should only be legal in cases of rape. His position is it should be for any reason the mother wants. So I'm going to call his bluff. I'll say, okay, for the sake of argument, I'm going to grant that we allow abortion in cases of rape. It's not my position, but I'll grant it. Will you join me now? in opposing all other abortions that have nothing to do with rape. Mm -hmm. What's his answer going to be? No way. No way. Woman has a fundamental right to an abortion for any reason she wants. It's her right. Okay. You believe she can have an abortion for any reason she wants, all nine months of pregnancy? Fine. Defend that position. Don't hide behind rape victims. So I'll call his bluff. Does that help a little? Now, one other thing I'll add to this. Four years ago, flying home, last event of the year, I'm dying to get home and go to you know, take a nice long lap, nap. I get two months off every year at the end of the year. And I could not wait to get home. 
and I notice that I have the exit row seat in the back of the 757. And I'm marching to the back of the airplane going, God loves me. I sit down and I'm in a section with a bunch of people decked out in carnival hats, streamers, uh, wild looking shirts. They're all 50 and above. They're all going on a crisis, a midlife crisis cruise, I guess. And I'm in their section. And I made a critical error. I had Chris Kaiser's book, The Ethics of Abortion, with me along with my book. And instead of putting them in my overhead bag up in the top, I sat down with him in my, on my lap. And the woman next to me sees the books. And her husband says, she's scared to death to fly. She's going to talk to you this whole trip. <laughs> she sees the books. She says, oh, abortion's awful. I'm Catholic. I'm pro-life. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. But you'll never convince me that a woman who's been raped shouldn't be allowed to have an abortion. All right, we're into it. <laughs> Her husband says, I warned you. <laughs> so I lean over and say, all right. Can I uh, ask you a question? In the case of pregnancy that results from rape, how many humans are involved, two or three? She looks at her husband, two. No, three. Two, three, 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 three. I said, yeah, I agree. You got the rapist, you got the mother, and who else you got? The child, yeah. I said, okay, do you mind if we discuss how we ought to treat each of them? Her husband's like, honey, this is not going to end well for you. <laughs> I said, should we execute the guilty rapist? No, that's barbaric. I'm against the death penalty. I'm Catholic. We need to get rid of the death penalty. It's awful. No. Put him in jail forever, but no. Okay, fair enough. I said, uh, how about the, the mother? Should we execute her? Are you kidding that's what, what, those third world Islamic terrorist countries do? The woman gets raped and they kill her rather than the dude? That's barbaric. I said, I agree. I said, now how about the child? Should we kill him for the act of his father? She said, I feel like you're trying to corner me. I said, I'm not cornering you. The argument is cornering you. And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, fair enough. By the way, do not press people just to score points. If they say, I don't know, back off. I mean, don't we encounter things from time to time where we don't know? She didn't need someone to shove it down her throat at that point. She needed somebody to give her something to think about. And for those of you that are pro-life, apologetics is not about winning a gunfight at the OK Corral, all right? It's about giving people something to think about. That's what we're trying to do here. So I just said, fair enough. I said, do you mind if I make just an observation, though? <coughs> you won't kill the guilty rapist. You wouldn't kill the mother. But you're unsure about the innocent child. What I was trying to do there is what my friend Greg Kokel calls put a pebble in their shoe, give them something to think about. So that, I don't know. I probably said way more than you were asking for. Is that helpful? Good. Yes? Yeah. Um, By the way, I have to point out something here. Uh, this young man right here, is it Josh? Caleb. Caleb, I'm sorry. Close. Uh, close. <laughs> All right, you ready? I got a story to tell. This young man is the son of a woman I went to high school with. Oh, wow. At Seventh-day Adventist Academy in San Fernando Valley, and uh, all of us ended up getting saved and becoming Christians. 
uh, in this small circle, and I knew his mom before he knew his mom, and I knew his aunt before he knew his aunt. His aunt was in my class, so it is great to have you here, uh, Caleb. Go ahead. This better be a good question, because your mother you know, would be ashamed of <laughs> Kidding. Um, so I know this isn't what the pro-life argument, is. there are boundaries to what we're, yeah. what you are arguing for. But say legislation is pushed, things start to happen, and um, imperatives and consequences for the legislature Led legislation take place. Is there like hypothetically, <coughs> what 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 would we say is <coughs> best ways to care for women in crisis preg pregnancies? Who literally this could be the the thing that keeps them from pursuing a career to get out of poverty. All you know yeah. from a what is there any hypothetical societal responsibility or just like other le legislation that you, you could foresee possibly helping to meet some of these needs? Very good question. Your mother will be proud of you. Okay. Um, you are correct that pro-lifers do care about the woman. And my case tonight was simply to say our case doesn't stand or fall on us taking on these other societal issues. And it's okay for us to be narrowly focused on saving the mother. I mean, nobody attacks the fire department for only getting people out of burning buildings and not paying for their college tuition. So that, that part uh, I, I do stand by. However, you'll be happy to know that right now in the United States, pregnancy centers that are run by pro-lifers outnumber abortion clinics by a huge margin. And they are caring for these women and providing them with essential services that they need, not only for their children before birth, but after birth as well. Uh, secondly, you'll be happy to know that, according to a study published in Public Discourse, that conservatives are quite charitable with their giving. In fact, uh, the title of the article was entitled The Lazy Slander of the Pro-Life Movement. And again, you weren't slandering it, I'm just pointing out that, and what the article went on to point out is that Pro-life organizations and individuals are actually doing a pretty good job caring for people right now uh, who don't opt for abortion. So I think there's good evidence that the private sector would step up. Now, one of the things, one of the premises that got put in place in our culture in the 1920s and 1930s was the belief that charity meant government program. And that assumption is faulty. And unfortunately, the Catholic bishops bought it. A lot of liberal Protestants bought it, mainline denominations. And now there's this understanding that, well, if we're cutting back government services, we don't care. And in reality, there is good reason to believe that conservatives at the community level in particular do care and that they would step up. And yes, you're correct, there would be uh, women where having children would interfere with their career. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But having a two-year-old interferes with your career. And having a teenager really interferes with your career. So these, these questions are important. And, and what I would say is there needs to be a discussion about it. You're right. It wouldn't, though, justify not moving to legally protect the unborn 
because we can't answer every question at the societal level if we give those protections. Now again, I know you're not arguing this, so I don't want to overstate my, my response here. But during the Civil War, when the abolitionists were making their case that the slaves should be given full rights, plantation owners argued, well, what are you going to do with all these slaves and what are you going to do for us? We're losing our economic uh, ability to survive here. You're going to strip all these southern plantations. You're going to wipe out the southern economy. And John Calhoun and others said, until you abolitionists have a plan for taking care of all the damage you'll do by giving the slave legal rights, you have no business arguing for the slave's freedom. And I think we can see how wrongheaded that would have been. The slave deserved his rights regardless of the consequences to slaveholders. And I would say that the, the unborn have a right to life, even if we are going to have to have continued conversation about what we do to best care for the mothers that, that uh, having children will indeed put them in hardship. Is that a fair answer? I, yeah. Great, great question. Thank you. Yeah. A couple of political questions if I could. Um, do you have opportunities uh, to teach uh, this type of argument to uh, pro-life politicians? It seems like what's needed is some, a good secular argument that's very logical, very reasonable, much like Richard T. Anderson's secular arguments against same-sex marriage. Uh, do you have opportunity to do that? I'm sure that the pro-choice politicians don't come knocking on your door. But do you have a chance? Well, they do, but not for that reason. Oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, and and uh, my second question was, where do you see the debate now uh, in America? Because I hear reports going one way, going the other way of, of people's attitude towards abortion. Uh, yes, I have worked with politicians. Uh, three years ago, myself, Francis Beckwith, uh, Patrick Lee, and uh, Jojo Ruba, and Trent Horn went to Pennsylvania and we trained 35 uh, politicians from the State House in Pennsylvania and a few congressional members. We spent a weekend with them training them how to make arguments for the pro-life field. So yes, I have done some of that, not near as much as I would like to. Um, for example, I'll just throw an idea out here. I have not been asked to do this, but if I were asked to do it, any presidential candidate who wanted to defend his pro-life view in the face of hostile media, I would tell him to just repeat ad infinitum a single sentence, just a single sentence. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And when they bring up all the rabbit trails, you just keep sticking to that one thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, that alone would help us a great deal. And you're exactly right. Uh, apologists should work with public officials that support our view to help them do the best they can. Uh, and I'll tell you why a lot of politicians are a little bit shy toward this. They're, they live in a bit different world than we do. Uh, we tend to look at things strictly, everything's black and white. We think that's a pro-life bill, it should be advanced. Their world is a lot different. They look at that bill and go, okay, I see why you like it. We don't have the votes for it. 
And if we lose a vote on that bill, we're going to have trouble bringing other things forward. And by the way, the federal courts are going to throw that bill out. And now we have another layer of case law to overcome. And their, their mind is acting on a whole different level. And yet, what do their base supporters often do? Demonize the guy because he's trying to be prudent, right? So they, they are a little bit, it takes some doing to convince them that we actually have their best interest at heart. Um, that's one thing. Now, what was the second part of your question? Uh, where do you see the, the debate oh, yeah. in America? Where's the debate going? How many of you have heard that this generation, this younger generation, is more pro-life than the one before? I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure. Let me tell you what gives me pause. What does it mean to say they're more pro-life? Does that mean they've embraced our fundamental worldview that leads to our pro-life convictions? Or does it just mean that they think anybody who's cruel, as one bumper sticker said, abortion sucks. Um, they think abortion's mean, but you know what else they think is mean? Telling someone they can't marry their canary. And so they also might think it's mean, and I've had students change on me, where they say, yeah, yeah, abortion's mean, but it's also mean to tell a woman what she has to do mm -hmm. with her own body. You cannot hold those two positions, all right? So I'm not totally convinced. I don't have an academic study to back me up, except George Barna, who has done two studies now indicating, and George Barna studies the, the uh, worldviews of Christians in particular, but also the culture. And George Barna, twice in the last year and a half, has published studies saying that the public's understanding of abortion is now so confused, it's almost hopeless. Uh, because people talk out both sides of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm never going to tell anybody else what they can do. That's only gotten worse. I think, for those of you that are pro-life, we are all apologists now. The days of believing you can leave it to the pros are done. You have to step up and <coughs> argue your case wherever you are, wherever God has put you. you got to do it. Uh, if you don't, don't assume anybody else is going to do it for you. So here are some things you should read, all right? Let me give you a reading list. Anybody that's interested, a reading list. Oh, how many of you, I did notice that some of you were taking notes faster than broke people at a Dave Ramsey seminar while I was talking. <laughs> and you were probably thinking, wouldn't it be great if this guy actually had notes on what he said to us tonight? I do. I do. So, if you will... Um, if you would, I should say, like a 20-page handout. I think it's a 20-page handout. Let me. Yeah, 20-page handout. Uh, that meant you could have stayed home and watched TV tonight. And no, you could. Um, I will actually email it to you. So here is how I'm going to do that. Um, Clinton, can we attach files at our LTI group page? Are we allowed to do that? How does that, can you look it up real quick and see if there's a means to uh, attach PDF files to a, a post there? Is, uh, it a, our is, it a, is it a Facebook site? Facebook. Yeah, you can download, I download all the time onto a Facebook site. Uh, you can't you know. do it on your personal page, no, but, but you can a, do it, it on it's a, a It's an apologetic site, and we down, I download PDF files all the time to an apologetic site. Which, which site? 
<laughs> EFCC, that's our church, apologetics.org. Well, no, it's just Facebook. It's just a Facebook site. Um, if we are not able to do that on our page, we're going to hijack yours, and I'm going to send you a bunch of customers. <laughs> you got it. So They have to all be friends of the EFCC apologetics, so we'll grow extraordinarily. Man, a pastor shows up and builds a church being at an abortion lecture. This is great. Alright, uh, can we do that? Does it show? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking it up uh, here now. It's under more, I think. Uh, just click on more. You can download files. Okay, write this Upload. down. Actually, uh, Steve, if you wouldn't mind just coming over here with and showing you. Yeah, we're making this up as we go, folks. Um, write these two things down. I'll give you our, our Facebook page. is just LTI, Life Training Institute here. Uh, we're going to try to post them there. I will post the notes there in about two hours. You'll be able to get them. And if that does not work, uh, we will post them to the other site that was just mentioned. Is that going to work? Um, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, okay. Right All right. He says it's going to work. Yes. Well, are we allowed to repost to... Yes. Okay. Because I have a group page called Don't Be Sorry for Being Apologetic. So... I like it. That's forgivable. Go right ahead. All right. You may do that. I'll take a few more questions. Oh, reading list. Thank you. All right. Book number. I'm going to give you the, the books in the order you should read them, okay? Does that help? Uh, all right. Book number one. Oh, boy, man. We're going to Amazon right now. Some of you are going to have a semi showing up in a two day period. This is great. Book number one. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> now wait, let me see if I put the reading list in the back of these notes. What's that? I could do that. I will write them. Uh, good idea. Thank you, Seth. It's a green highlighter. We'll see how it does. Uh, Peter Krepp. Oh, forget it. <laughs> Did anybody see that? No, you can't see that. All right. Is it dry erase? Peter Krepp, K-R-E-E-F-T. I know it looks like Kreef, but I guess he pronounces it Krepp from what I've heard. The unaborted Socrates. Peter Krepp. Oh, yeah. Unaborted Socrates. Published by IVP. Uh, it's a dramatic dialogue between Socrates, an abortionist, and a moral relativist. What could go wrong? It is hilarious. And you will learn pro-life apologetics. He keeps bringing it back to the question, what is the unborn? Peter Kreft. Uh, unaborted Socrates. Second book to read. This one I must include reservations on, but uh, Scott Klusendorf, The Case for Life. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the Case for Life. Did it work? Uh, yeah, it looks like it can. Uh, I don't know if I can do it. I think no. the, the main you administrator. I did. I'm an administrator, so, so I can do it. Could probably okay. Go to our page, Life Training Institute, in about two hours. Let me get back to the hotel and I'll, I'll fix that. Uh, Peter Kreft, The Unaborted Socrates, The Case for Life by yours truly. And then the third book to read is Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair by Beckwith and Kokel. Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair 
by Beckwith and Kokel. Just if you stopped right there, just right there, you will be in the top 5% of people who have knowledge on this issue. You'd, you'd be in great shape. Now, anybody want to go deeper than that? Okay. Next book to read. Francis J. Beckwith, Defending Life. Francis J. Beckwith, Defending Life. Published by Cambridge University Press. Third book, or, or, or uh, fifth, is that fifth now? Yeah, whatever, the next book. Um, Christopher Kayser. Christopher Kayser. How many of you were here when he spoke here? Okay, good. K-A-C-Z-O-R. K-A-C-Z-O-R, The Ethics of Abortion. Christopher Kayser, The Ethics of Abortion, second edition. I'll give you one more. I mean, you, you've read this far, you're, you're really gonna be cruising, okay? Um, Patrick Lee, Abortion and Unborn Human Life. Abortion and Unborn Human Life. And can I make a suggestion? Do not just read these books. Devour them. Mark them up. Don't even think of getting them on Kindle. Mark them up. Put notes in the margins. Your book should be destroyed by the time you've mastered it. And then you throw it out and buy a new one and remaster it again. No, I'm kidding. Um, just that there, I think. I mean, there's more I could give you. I could give you Hadley Arcus's first things. Hadley Arcus. Uh, natural rights and the right to choose. And what I'll do, I'll when I get back to the uh, hotel, if I have a Word file of these notes, I think I do. If I have a Word file, I will uh, go back in and I'll add the reading list before making a PDF of it so that you have it. Is that yeah. fair? You all love me now? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Could you also post it to the Facebook page and pin it as a post? Oh, yeah. That's... Now there's a dull moment. Yeah, I could just put the, the, the reading list there. I can't do the notes that way, but I will do the reading list that way. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, question uh, you and then you. What was the point of the staring game? Uh, what makes a sequel? You were looking around just to uh, you know, stare and then I put the question on you. You're looking around the room. Now what makes us all equal? Okay. It was an attempt to be a laugh line. Got it. <laughs> I actually wanted more uh, a clarification. Like, first of all, I agree with uh, so far everything uh, you uh, you've said. I just uh, want to be sure. So, uh, what uh, like for the sake of curiosity, uh, why is human nature the thing we use to define human value? Because anything else other than human nature that you pick out will be something that none of us share equally, and that may come and go in your lifetime, and that's going to be problematic. For example, uh, let's say it's self-awareness. We're not all equally self-aware. How about viability? We're not all equally able to live on our own. Physical ability. We're, we're not all physically equal. Everything that people pick out to, to define human value on function rather than endowment, as Chris Kayser says, our common human nature, which as Christians we believe bears the image of our maker. Anything else you pick out will not be objective, it'll be might makes right. Whatever the powerful decide is that thing that matters, that will be what matters. And the reason why the abortion debate is so critical is that it's a test of our first principles as a nation. 
Do we believe that all men are created equal, endowed with certain rights that come from their creator, or do we think government makes up these rights? The debate between Lincoln and Douglas was not just a debate about slavery. It was a debate about first principles. Do our rights come to us in virtue of our humanity, or does government create positive law, and that's how we get our rights? If government creates rights, what can government do? Take them away. And Lincoln's argument was, echoing the founders, that the only safe way to ground human rights was to ground it in a transcendent source. All men are equal by nature. And anything else you, you pick out, uh, you're, you're going to get savage inequality. And by the way, you could gain and lose these things and regain them again in the course of your lifetime, which means you'd go from being a person to a non-person back to being a person again, and it, it becomes absurd. So that is why uh, grounding it in our common human nature is the only way that makes sense. Thank you. Great question. Yes. Miss Filmmaker here. What's the name of your film? Tell us again. It's going to be called The Matter of Life. Uh, matter. matter of Life, a, a documentary being made, and you're going to have to tell me your first name again. Tracy. Tracy is making this documentary, and uh, write it down. Look for it. Go ahead, Tracy. Uh, I was recently approached by um, someone who, I forget the term you used for them, but kind of trying to dis, uh, disrupt, and their argument was, I guess, how would you, my question for you is, how would you respond for someone making the case for uh, abortion in the case of fetal anomalies, uh, severe and severe disa uh, disabilities. Yeah. How would you make the case uh, when someone is saying that the compassionate response is abortion in that case, to prevent that person from suffering a life of um, yeah. depending on other people and mm -hmm. not being... Yeah, what about abortion in the case of... Uh, Severe fetal anomalies, uh, things like that, where the child might suffer significantly uh, throughout the course of his life. Uh, as is the case with rape, I always like to start with showing empathy both for the parent that, that will be given this job of caring for the child. Uh, it's always okay to show your humanity and admit that. Then I would very gently point out that a damaged human is not a non-human. Nobody would kill a two-year-old to prevent him from being suffering at five years old. Uh, we're back to the question, what is the unborn? We don't kill two-year-olds to prevent five-year-olds from suffering. If the unborn are human, we should not kill them for their suffering any more than we kill a five-year-old. Now, uh, that does not mean we are always obligated to prevent death. If the child is dying from his disease or pathology, the pro-life position is not that you must always do everything to prevent death. It's that you must never intentionally kill. You will always care, not harm. So that means if that child is dying from illness, uh, then we're going to care as best we can for the life the child has, not the one we wish he had. And we will do everything to care for him. Uh, until he dies if we're unable to successfully treat him. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah by the way, these are heartbreaking situations that people do. <coughs> and um, 
I don't, have any of you ever walked a loved one through the final chapter of life where you've had to kind of be the one that, and wondered, hey, is it okay to withhold treatment in this case? Uh, yeah, these are tough questions that would apply to the child that's severely suffering too. I'll take a couple more. Is there someone who hasn't asked one? You haven't asked one yet, and then you're up, you're, you're up next. Um, so my question is, uh, when debating somebody, um, you come across someone who's very nihilistic over the subject opposed to you, yeah. and um, you know they come up to the whole thing, well, um, you know, it's, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it because we're just all animals. You know, you yeah. advocate to you know, putting down a dog, and even you, know, you bring up the whole thing, well, you know, well, what's preventing me from murdering you? And then they say, like, oh, it's just the societal norm, but yeah. that same societal norm doesn't apply to an unborn person like at that point, is it like, okay, do I just kind of like go, this person's going down the whole thing without having to go into, you know, uh, you know denying his, his, you know, belief in nihilism, or is there a way for me to quickly, like, you know, put that down and continue on with the discussion I'm having with them? Yeah, uh, I think you can challenge their belief that there's no difference between species, that species membership does not matter. Um, look. A dog that can't read, as Kayser points out, is not a tragedy. A 16-year-old young woman who can't read is one. Our understanding of pathology assumes that humans are exceptional. Uh, how many of you remember the story of Michael Vick, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons that uh, abused dogs, and he was involved in a dog fighting ring? And when the dogs would lose, he would douse them in gasoline and kerosene and light them on fire, and he, he went to federal jail for this, rightfully so, I might add. Why were we angry at Michael Vick, but not angry at the dogs who tore each other up in these fights? They were trained. What's that? It was the nature of the dog. Yeah, I mean, dogs don't have conscious uh, awareness of right and wrong the way that humans do. Wasn't the reason that we prosecuted Michael Vick that we expect better of him as a man? So we do think humans are different, but Kayser gives a real quick response to this. He says, do we really think there's no difference between a hit and run with a squirrel and a hit and run with a disabled infant? And do we really think there's no difference between eating a hamburger and eating a Harold burger? That's, a, that's an unbelievable line. Um, you know, I think you can mock that a little bit and make fun of it gently because it's an absurd idea. It's a very absurd idea. Uh, by the way, if all animals are equal, Killing the unborn is wrong because they're animals and they too shouldn't be intentionally killed. So it doesn't help their case in any way to try to diminish the, the uh, um, exceptionalism of the human race. Uh, by the way, the fact that humans are exceptional is why we treat animals different than they treat each other. Uh, we are different and we hold humans responsible for right and wrong. We don't prosecute orcas who tear each other up under the, old, uh, under the ocean and kill dolphins or whatever, you know, so. All right, one more from some, you're it. <laughs> it, it plays off, you're talking about the disabled child. Uh, yesterday I was at Maricosta talking with students and defending the, the life of the unborn uh, all day and at the end of the day as we were packing up, a young girl came up to me and she told me her experience where her mother had asked her to have an abortion because she had an unexpected pregnancy and she chose not to. And now her mother celebrates the fact that uh, she has a beautiful child. 
Well, she t then she told me a second story, and she said that her grandmother was pregnant late in, later in her life, and she was told by her doctor that she needed to abort this child because <clears throat> the chances of, of a, a weak heart or a bad heart really was high. The risk was going to be high. Doctor said, you need to abort this child. For the mother or the child? The mother would have oh, a weak heart? Oh, no, no, excuse the me, the, the child would. Okay, all right. The child would have a weak heart. The grandmother decided to keep the child, she, she told me. And then she said, that child now is my aunt and is in perfect health. And the doctor was wrong, was completely wrong. And my question is, how many times, or per, what is the percentage when doctors say you should abort because of this physical ailment, that they are wrong in their diagnosis? I don't know. But it does happen. It does. Uh, there are misdiagnoses, or misdiagnosis happens all the time. I don't know the numbers. Uh, I've read articles from doctors who have regretted that they were too hasty in their assessment, but I can't tell you what that looks like. I don't know, but it, you're right, it does happen because we've read stories of it, and even in the peer-reviewed literature, you'll find mention of this. Um, the most common diagnosis that goes wrong is uh, amniocentesis, where they uh, end up with a faulty reading indicating that there'll be Down syndrome and a lot of those babies are born healthy. That happens. Uh, no diagnostic tool is you know, foolproof. There will be errors. I just don't know what the numbers are. It's a fair question. I just don't have a good answer for you. But it made my day. It, yeah. was, it was the last person I talked to, yeah. and it was, it was an uplifting moment. Yeah. Uh, By the way, before you all go, I want to introduce a few people. This is Clinton Wilcox on keyboard over here. Uh, he works with us at the Institute. Clinton plays, I think, every instrument under the sun. Uh, and uh, is that, am I right on that, just about everyone? Uh, well, I have two main instruments, clarinet and piano slash keyboard, and I've uh, I've played some others when the, when the need arose, basically. <laughs> when the need arose, he just picks up the saxophone. Man. Okay. Uh, also, in the back, that is Olivia Gruber holding Cedar, and that is Seth, her husband, seated right there. Olivia works in our office. She is the one who makes sure I don't double book myself on dates <laughs> and uh, take the right airplanes and all of that good stuff. So that's Seth and Olivia in the back there. Up here, up here in the front, you've all, you all know Nathan, right? A lot of you know Nathan. Uh, Nathan is not only U.S. Air Force, so Army. Army. My, we'll talk later. my level of self-awareness just dropped. Uh, what's that? Yes, absolutely. Nathan Abadaka is U.S. Army, and he is also one of our LTI ambassadors who uh, works for us, and uh, he helps with research and does things, and he was the guy responsible for getting this event done, along with, along with, over here, is a very nice young woman by the name of Rebecca Dyer, and she has been involved as well. And where was the campus you were doing your pro-life work at this week? It was at near Costa, so I was at the, the, the same one. I yeah. So would you give it up for these people? <laughs> okay. 
think I've got everybody. I hope I didn't. Have I forgotten anybody, Clinton? Did I, uh, I think that's probably everyone. The mother town of Nathan. You better believe it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll give it up for you, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, all of you. We will have the notes published on our uh, LTI Facebook page, Lord willing, in about two hours, two and a half hours. And the reading list I will post as a Facebook status. So you, if you didn't write very fast, we'll have that for you. And uh, just, a, just a tiny one. I'm sorry. I know that was the last one. But, uh, yeah. Uh, my name's Ruben Serrano. Hello, Ruben. I'm a coordinator <coughs> yeah. for 40 Days for Life. Good. Which is going on right now, just so you know. So any of you who are you know, faithful, pro-life people who can pray and hold a sign, um, that's going on somewhere in your locale. So anyhow, I'm, we came from Chula Vista, actually, so maybe we beat nice. the other person who came 30 minutes away. Uh, oh, anyhow, there you go. Uh, 40 Days for Life is an excellent way to get people involved helping with the issue who haven't done anything, and this is a great way for them to come and be with other believers, pray in front of clinics. I, glad you're here. Oh, thank you. Good to have you. Yeah. All right. So, so my question, I'm sorry, was, oh. uh, so we were lost, came a little late, um, so I didn't. I want to know kind of uh, like what is your, your mission? Like what is it that you hope to uh, accomplish? I don't know if you mentioned that. And how could we help with that? Uh, yeah, great, great, great question. Okay, Life Training Institute exists to equip pro-life Christians to make a case for life. The primary way we execute our mission is to go into Catholic <coughs> and Protestant high schools and give pro-life apologetics presentations. So yesterday, I was uh, doing chapel at Biola University, and I did a pro-life apologetics presentation there. And then earlier that day, I was at Desert Christian High School doing a pro-life apologetics presentation. And Sunday, I'll be at Rose Drive Friends Church in, where is that? Yorba, is that Yorba, Yorba Linda? Linda? Yorba Linda, speaking to, apparently they're gonna pull two or three youth groups together for this thing, so we could have quite a good crowd. And I'll be giving a pro-life presentation to them. So at LTI, we are very focused. We do not do abstinence talks. Now, we support that work, okay, make no mistake, but that's not what we do. We focus on one thing, making the case for life, and we're, we're going after the ideas that make abortion plausible to people. That's what we're trying to do. So we do, I, I think I'm safe in saying this, we are the only organization I'm aware of that systematically goes after schools to get our speakers invited in to speak. We have a full-time person who works to get our speaking team in, and then the speakers themselves, including me, we each, all of our speaking team, we've got five full-time speakers, they don't get to rely just on the promoter. Each one of them has to get 10,000 students a year they get in front of. By calling up schools and getting in to speak and learning how to negotiate, how to get in and do it right so that the school wins having us in, and, um, that's what we do, and I do it too. By the way, I hit my 10,000 for the year two days ago. Mm. I'm going for way more than that, baby. So, uh, yeah. I'm rocking that one. In March? What's that? I said in March. I did. I did. And um, I'm going after some, uh, you know, it helps when you get things like Biola and get some bigger audiences, but I've, I'm going to go for it. You know, children die if I don't show up and make a talk. That bugs me. Uh, Children will be spared when our speakers get in front of audiences. Football stadiums. I'll take it if you can get me one. Yeah. 
Yeah, that'd be great. Hey, thanks everybody for being here and thank those who organized this. Be sure to come by and thank Nathan and uh, say hi to the team if you get a chance. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.